Well, good morning, everyone. I hope y'all are doing well. Um, I have a question for y'all. Have you ever experienced a moment where you felt like an outsider? You were in a situation where you knew you didn't belong, and you, just that sense of being an outsider just overwhelmed you. But someone who was an insider welcomed you in. They, they were kind to you, and they treated you like an outsider or an insider. I'm sure we all have experienced that moment. And I actually observed that moment recently. Uh, our oldest son, Micaiah, just started taking karate. And he's made me a proud daddy because that's what I did. And so it's fun to watch him doing that and kind of reminisce and, and experience that through his eyes now. And um, I got to go with him to his second lesson. And at this lesson, they hadn't gotten his uniform yet. They had a shipment, but it hadn't arrived yet. So as I was watching the class go on, you've got all these kids in their uniforms, but then you have Kai, who's just in your T-shirt and gym shorts. And so I kind of thought it was funny and laughed to myself because visually it was very clear, like, he's an outsider to this situation. But even if he had the uniform on, this is his second time at a, you know, karate, so he's still learning all this. He's still new to this. So even if he had the uniform on... As you would watch him, you would be able to tell, okay, he's new to this. He's he's not familiar with this setting yet, right? But the thing that I really appreciated about his instructor was how welcoming and inviting the teacher was and and made him feel like an insider. And, you know, his first lesson, he got to go in and break his first board. And he got to experience that, that thrill and that sensation of what an insider in that environment gets to experience. Um... And so the reason I bring that up, the reason I point that out and want us to have this picture of an outsider who's welcomed by an insider is because the, the text we're going to look at today, we're going to see that story play out several times. Um, we're going to be in Luke 7, so if y'all want to go ahead and flip there, you can. Um, and while you're turning there, I'll go ahead and set the, the stage for you. So Luke 7 is broken into four stories, and three of those stories we're going to see outsiders We're going to see people who don't belong in a situation, but we're going to see Jesus interact with them and lovingly embrace them and welcome them in and make them insiders. Um, Now, as you get there, you may have noticed uh, it's a big text. It's 50 verses. So Matt chose me to preach this sermon, and we're going to go through the whole text. Um, Now, I'm going to try to, to summarize some things, and I'm going to try to, you know, fit within our 30 minute lot, but... 50 verses is a lot, y'all, so um, I'm going to try my best, but I'm also not skilled enough to wing it and kind of summarize some other things, so just bear with me if y'all would. Um, so if you're at Luke 7, we're only going to read the first portion. I'm not going to read 50 verses and make y'all stand for that whole time. So out of reverence for the Word, would y'all please stand, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him for he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I do not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. 
And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. And thank you that through your word comes healing and life and forgiveness. Let us be reminded of those things this morning. Let us be reminded of the authority of your word. And I pray that we would marvel at your word this morning. I pray that your words, your truth would come out of my lips. Not my words, not my will, not my agenda, but your truth. And that we would be overwhelmed by your truth and we would marvel at it. And God, I pray and ask that you would grow us in our love for you, Jesus. But in order for that to happen, God, you need to grow us in our understanding of the depths of our sins. So do that too, please. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Y'all can be seated. Thank you. So we just read the first story and we... We're just introduced to our first outsider, and he's obviously the Roman centurion. So why is he an outsider? Well, he's an outsider for two reasons. He's an ethnic outsider. He's not Jewish, so he's a Gentile. And he's a political outsider. He is a Roman military guy. Now, if you remember your history, at this point in time, Rome is ruling over all this land. So they're ruling over the Jews. And so a guy like this is probably despised by most Jewish people because someone like him is used to subdue the Jewish people and maintain that rule that Rome has. And yet this is our first outsider. And this is a man that Jesus is going to embrace and love. Now we, we have the stage set for us in verse one. If you remember, it said, after he had finished all his sayings. So after Jesus finished his sayings, so what sayings did he just finish? Well, we remember last week, we just covered it. And we would refer to it as the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus just finished preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And so after he finishes this sermon, he's going to go and do what we just read. So what was the Sermon on the Mount? Well, in a nutshell, as Matt reminded us, Jesus drew the 12 to himself so that he could then send them back into the world to engage it. He didn't draw them to himself to isolate them, but he prepared them so they could go and engage the world so, of course, that leads to, well, how do we engage the world? And Jesus spells that out in the sermon. Love your, love your enemies. Love those who can't love you or won't love you. Do good to those who don't do good back to you. Uh, give to those who can't repay you. He also talked about judging. He said, it is, there is a good and godly way to judge, but never, ever be judgmental in your judging of others. Never, ever view yourself as better than someone else. So Jesus says these things, and now he's going to go to Capernaum where he's going to indirectly interact with the Roman centurion. He's going to interact with this enemy. It's as if Jesus says, all right, I just told you how you engage the world. Now watch me go and do it perfectly so you have a perfect example. So the story, if you remember, you have a Roman centurion. He's got a servant who's sick, highly valuable to him. He hears about Jesus. He hears, hey, Jesus can heal my servant. But we kind of get a, a sense from the text that the centurion recognizes, I'm a Roman, so Jesus may not be very interested in, in hearing from me. He may reject my request, right? So he sends Jewish leaders to Jesus. And apparently these guys really like the Roman centurion because they go to Jesus and they plead with him. The words, the Greeks that's used there 
It says that they begged and pleaded with Jesus. It's not this, hey, would you do this favor? Oh, no, okay, no big deal. They went into this situation with this intent of not taking no for an answer. So apparently they really like this guy and they're willing to go do that. And then they play him up to Jesus. He loves our people. So he's not Jewish, but he's a sympathizer. He loves our people and he loves us so much that he built the synagogue that we worship and pray in. So that's clearly the tactic that they're going to try to use to, to get Jesus to agree to us. And apparently it works because we see that Jesus goes with them. And then as Jesus draws near to the man's house, we see in uh, verse 6 that this man sends out some friends to Jesus with a message. And halfway through 6, we see the message. He says, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. So this man sends a message to Jesus and says, you don't need to come to my house. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. So this centurion displays a good and a right humility before Jesus. Now, when he says Lord, he's not saying you're the Messiah, which we may read that and that's how we might interpret that. But he's not saying you are the Messiah, so I'm not worthy to be in your presence. He's simply saying the the word Lord is just a, a, a... respectable title that he's giving to Jesus as a Gentile would speak to someone that's high authority in the Jewish community. Um, So he he doesn't see Jesus as the Messiah, but he does see, hey, this man requires my respect. And more so, he sees the authority that Jesus possesses. And so we get this sense like, all right, he sees this authority. And so that's, he has a proper fear of Jesus. And that's what he goes on. That that authority that he's aware of is what drives the rest of his message. Remember what he said? He said, you can simply say the word and my servant will be healed. I'm familiar with authority too. I have soldiers that I'm in command of. And if I tell them to do this, they're going to do it. And I know you have similar authority. All you have to do is say the word and my servant will be healed. You don't even have to be in the presence of my servant. You don't have to touch them. You don't have to administer medicines. You just, wherever you are on the planet, just say the word and my servant will be healed. So then what does Jesus do? How did he respond in that situation? We're told he marveled. So why does he marvel? What is causing Jesus to marvel? Well, he answers that question in verse 9 when he addresses the crowd, which is presumably Jewish people. So he looks at crowd with them, which is probably Jews. And he says, this political and ethnic outsider has demonstrated a faith that is far greater than any faith I've seen amongst our own people. Now, I think not only is it important to note what caused Jesus to marvel, but we should remind ourselves what did not cause Jesus to marvel. The man's status did not cause Jesus to marvel. Jesus didn't marvel at the fact that, hey, he's a high-ranking Roman military guy. He didn't marvel at the fact that this man loves the Jewish people. He didn't marvel at the fact that he apparently spent money or something to build this synagogue. He doesn't even marvel at the fact that you have a political ethnic outsider who's such a likable guy that he has Jewish leaders who like him enough that they're willing to come to Jesus and plead on his behalf. None of those things cause Jesus to marvel, do they? The thing that causes Jesus to marvel is this man's faith. So it's a reminder to us, we should not marvel at the things of this world. Remember, he said that in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes. We should not be impressed by the things of this world. 
What we should marvel at is godliness. That is what should stop us in our tracks and cause us to stand in awe. So what is it about this man's faith? What does his faith what is his faith made up of that would cause Jesus to marvel? Because when Jesus addresses the crowd, we get this sense that you can have various levels of faith. His faith is greater than the faith that I've seen amongst our own people. I think we see three things that combine, create this faith that leads Jesus to marvel. The first is his humility. Remember what he said? I am not worthy to be in your presence. Now, Jesus, at this point in his ministry, He's at the height of his ministry. I mean, we, we just saw it. He's addressing a crowd. So people are following him. And the crowd does not mean the 12 disciples. It's talking about lots of people following him. And there's a lot of people in that group who don't actually believe. They just want to be entertained. They want to see what's the next thing he's going to do. So Jesus is at the height right now of his ministry. He's in the public's eye. I'm hesitant to put modern day lingo on it, but he's kind of like a celebrity right now. I mean, everyone wants to see him. You know, he is just in the public eye. And yet this centurion, his humility leads him to say, I'm not worthy to be in your presence. And that even, that, because of that humility, he has to therefore uh, forsake the opportunity of meeting Jesus. He could have hosted Jesus in his own home, but he gave up that opportunity because he recognized, I'm not worthy to be in your presence. I mean, think about that for us for a second. If you had the opportunity to meet a celebrity, a superstar, even if it was someone you really didn't care about, wouldn't you take them up on that chance? I'm not a Patriots fan. I really am not a Tom Brady fan. But if I had the chance to meet the guy, I would want to meet him, right? I'd want a picture with him. I'd want to say, hey, he came to my house and had lunch with me. Or if Joanna Gaines called you up and said, I'm going to come shiplap your whole house, would, you would do it, wouldn't you? Because you would want to meet celebrities. We like to meet celebrities. We want to rub elbows with them. And then we want to brag about it to people like, hey, you know, I met this person. I'm buddies with this person, right? And yet this guy in his humility was willing to say, I'll pass on the opportunity to meet Jesus because I know I'm not worthy to be in his presence. The second thing that we see in his faith is dependence. He sees Jesus as his only option. It's not like, hey, I'm going to try Jesus, but I've also got some other doctors and some other, you know, herbal medicine witch doctors out there that I'm going to try too. He knows Jesus is my only option. So he is fully dependent on Jesus. And then the third thing is awareness. He is aware that the reason Jesus is his only option is because Jesus possesses the authority to do what he needs done. So what about us? Is our faith marked by humility? Is our faith marked by dependence on God? Is our faith marked by an awareness of the authority that he possesses? As we get to verse 11, we get to our second story, and this is our second outsider, and um, she is, it's our, this, the second outsider is the widow. So picking up in verse 11, soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the buyer, and the bearer stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him to his mother. 
Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So our second outsider is this widow. And she's an outsider because of socioeconomics. So remember, quick, quick refresher on Jewish cultures. A woman like this in this situation was to be pitied, right? Women were fully dependent on their husbands and their children and their children's families to take care of them, right? So we see her husband's dead, and now her only son has just died, so she has no one to take care of her. This is not a society where she can draw from life insurance, where she can go draw assistance from the government. She can go get a job and hire a nice, you know, a really good financial planner who's going to make sure she's set up for retirement. Like, this is a heartbreaking scenario because she has no one to take care of her now. And we get a sense of that, that heartbrokenness because a considerable crowd was with her at this funeral procession. So apparently they were a very liked and loved family. So people are heartbroken over what's playing out. So Jesus comes upon this and he is filled with compassion. So what do you think he's going to do? He's going to comfort her in some loving way, right? Well, he does comfort her, but he doesn't comfort her in the way we would comfort. He ends up doing three very odd things. The first thing is he goes up and says, do not weep. Now, imagine being at a funeral and some person walks up to the grieving family and says, don't cry. I mean, that's pretty ridiculous, right? We would, we would be shocked if someone did that. The second thing he does is he goes up and grabs the buyer, which is the casket. It's like an open casket. He grabs it. We don't know why he grabs it. We're not told his intentions. It, it, some commentaries speculate that he went up to grab it to stop the procession, to, to get everyone to stop and to focus on him. We don't know if that's why he did it, but that is the result of him touching it. We're told the bearers stopped. So all of a sudden, this procession has stopped. Jesus has disrupted this procession, and all the attentions now focused fully on him. The other thing with touching the buyer is now he is unclean because that contained a dead body. So that was unclean. So by touching that, he is now unclean. So he's, dis he's, he's just told a grieving woman to stop crying. He's just disrupted her funeral procession. And now what does he do? He starts to talk to a dead person. So again, let's go back to that hypothetical funeral that you're at. The person just tells the grieving family to stop and then goes over to the casket and starts talking to the dead person in the casket. Like, we would be shocked at that. We would say, that person is crazy. Why? Because it's a dead person in the casket. And you and me, we don't possess the power and the authority to raise the dead back to life. But Jesus does. So Jesus' remarks, Jesus' actions are not foolish and they're not empty. He was filled with compassion and he is the only one who can bring that dead man back to life. So he did that very thing. He speaks to the dead man and says, young man, arise. And immediately life entered that dead man. And he sits up and starts talking. This is not a Disney princess moment where the prince comes and gives the, the, the sleeping princess a kiss. And then she doesn't wake up. So he starts to walk away. And then all of a sudden you see her eyes kind of flutter and she stirs and she starts to wake up. Life immediately entered the dead man and he sits up and starts to talk. The next thing that happens is a very beautiful moment. We're told that Jesus gives this son who's now alive to the mother. He gives the son back to the mother. And the reason why I think this is such a beautiful moment is we need to go back to verse 13. 
Verse 13 says, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. This is the first time in Luke where Luke uses the word Lord to speak of Jesus. Now, obviously, the centurion has called Jesus Lord, but this is the first time Luke will choose the word Lord to describe Jesus. And the centurion was referring to Jesus as, you are worthy of my respect because you are a respectable man. But the sense here is Luke is saying, this is not just a Lord that is worthy of our respect. This is the Lord. This is the Lord God. So that verse is reading, the Lord God saw her and had compassion on her. The Lord God raised the dead man back to life. The Lord God gave this son back to his mother. I think that's so beautiful because to me, it reminds me, the Lord God sees his people and he has compassion on his people. He knows our every need and he will always, always, always take care of us. He will always provide for us. He will always protect us. He will always meet our needs. Even if that means disrupting our life. The reaction to this situation is not surprising, right? I mean, if you saw this happen, what do you, how would you respond? You'd be scared. I mean, a guy just raised someone back from the dead. That's pretty scary, right? There's also people are filled with awe, though, because this is spectacular. This woman is now going to be taking care of. Her son is back from the dead, and he is going to be able to help take care of her. So both fear has seized the people, but they also are worshiping God. And then the people, if you see in a verse, I guess it's halfway through 16, they begin to call him a great prophet. Now, the thing is, when they call him a great prophet, they're not saying this is the prophet we've been waiting for. This is the Messiah. They're saying he's a great prophet now because he just did something really cool. So before Jesus was down here because he healed people, he'd given sight to the blind. He'd done some stuff, but other prophets have done that before. But all of a sudden he just raised someone from the dead. And there's only a few other prophets who have done that before. So he is a great prophet. He's like Elijah and Elisha now. They're not recognizing that he is the Messiah. It's not clicking with them yet. And as we go into this third story, we're going to get an insider's perspective now. And the insider's perspective is unique in that, or the insider is unique because he's John the Baptist. He's the guy that prepared the way for Jesus. And even John, we're going to see, has doubts. Even John is struggling with, are you the one or are you a great prophet? Now, again, because of time, this is about 20 verses, so I'm not going to read this whole text. I'm going to kind of just have to summarize what's going on here. So if you want to follow on, though, this is 18 through 35 in your Bible. So John's in prison. If you remember a few chapters before, Herod threw him in prison. So John's in prison now, and his disciples are coming to him and reporting to him and telling him what Jesus is up to. And in prison, John expresses doubt. And he says to the disciples, go to Jesus and ask him, are you the one we have waited for? Or is there someone greater coming? So they go to Jesus. They meet with Jesus. And we're told that in that hour, in the moment that these guys ask Jesus this question, his first thing to do is he heals many people. He heals, the, he gives sight to the blind. He expels demons from people. He performs a bunch of miracles. And then he says to the disciples, go back to John and tell him what you've seen me do. And then he says, the blind receive sight, the lame are walking, the dead are raised to life. The good news is proclaimed to the poor. 
Now, those things that Jesus is saying to the disciples are actually prophecies. Those were Old Testament prophecies that were made concerning the Messiah. So it's as if Jesus is saying to John, remember the prophecies, remember what the prophets said about me. And then he's saying, and tell John what you've seen me done. I have been doing these very things. So they leave, they go back to John. We don't, we're not told of John's response in this moment. Um, but then we see that Jesus addresses the crowd that's with him. And I think this moment should be an encouragement to us. Jesus essentially says to the crowd, John is not just a prophet. He was given the special task of coming and preparing the way for the Messiah. So John is not only a prophet, but he is the greatest man to ever live. And that should be an encouragement to us that John, who according to Jesus is the greatest man to ever live, had doubts. And yet Jesus praises him. Jesus does not rebuke him. Jesus does not uh, criticize him for doubting. The way Jesus responded to John was, look at what I've done. Remember the promises and look at how I've fulfilled them. So that should be a reminder to us that when we doubt, we don't need to, be, we don't need to bury ourselves in shame. We need to go to the truth. We need to go back to the word. We need to remember God's promises and we need to remember how God has kept his promises. When the crowd hears this, we're told that they believed. Verse 29, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just and having been baptized with the baptism of John. So we're told that they believed, and he mentions this baptism of John. Well, if you remember, John came proclaiming a message of repentance, and he was calling people to be baptized. So the people that have believed, the people that have accepted this call to repentance, it can be shown through the fact that they have been baptized, that they accepted this call to baptism by John. But then we're told the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God, not having been baptized in So they have rejected the will of God. And we know that because they rejected the call from John to be baptized. So you have the Pharisees and lawyers, the men who have spent their life studying the word of God, studying the law of God, studying the will of God. And yet they have ultimately rejected the will of God. So Jesus addresses them and he says, what shall I compare you to? And in verse 32, he says, They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So Jesus is pretty much saying to these people who have rejected the will of God, you were like a spoiled, rotten brat who has gone off to the side to pout about things. What I, the picture that I, or the, what I think of when I read the stories, I think of Eustace, if you're familiar with the voyage of the Don Treader from Narnia. He's just a punk kid. He's, he plays pranks on people, and he thinks it's awesome. But the moment you play a prank on him, he starts crying about it and whining, and you're so mean and unfair to me, and blah, blah, blah. The picture is, it's all fun and games until you're losing and you're the butt of the joke. And then all of a sudden, these Pharisees and lawyers, they're going off and crying about it. 
Jesus is saying, you are arrogant and you are hypocrites. You have rejected the will of God and you're upset because God's will does not line up with your will. But you need to humble yourself. You need to repent and you need to accept God's will. And then I think in a very ironic moment, Jesus has just called them hypocrites. He says, so John didn't eat and drink and you called him possessed by a demon, but I'm eating and drinking with sinners and you call me a drunkard and a glutton. And then the very next verse we're told, a Pharisee invites Jesus out to eat. It's like, wait a minute. Okay, so if he does this with sinners, it's called drunkenness and gluttony. But when the Pharisees invite him over for a meal, it's not that. But who am I to judge? Um, so that leads us into our fourth story, and we meet our third and final outsider. We meet the sinful woman. Now, the sinful woman is... I think this is the easiest outsider of them all to see, right? She's sinful. She's outsider because of her morals or lack of morals. And in verse 37, Jesus is at this meal and we meet her. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the oil. So we're told this woman is a sinner and it's presented in a way that suggests everyone knows she's a sinner. So again, she's an obvious outsider to this picture. It's kind of like the kid down in the, in the karate class without the uniform. It's visually, it's very apparent that she does not belong here. What's making it even more apparent is the way she is interacting with Jesus. She's showing him love and affection in a very uncommon way. Now, she's called a sinner, but there's no emphasis or uh, hint at what the sin is. Now, we could probably make guess and figure out, uh, you know, or probably make educated guess. But the emphasis is not on her sins. The emphasis is being placed on her actions toward Jesus. The emphasis is placed on her love that she is directing towards Jesus. So it's a reminder to us, just as Jacob said earlier before that song, um, it's a reminder for us that we are sinful. We are, we could put ourselves in this picture, right? We are that sinful woman, that sinful man. We are in need of saving. And so it would be good and right for us to assume the same posture that this woman has before Jesus. We get to 39, and we're told that someone's not very happy. Again, spoiled little brats. Uh, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who was touching him, for she is a sinner. So Simon scoffs internally to himself that Jesus is clearly not a prophet. Everyone's calling him a great prophet, but he's obviously not a prophet at all, because if he was, he would know this woman's a sinner, and he would be rebuking her right now. So then Jesus, being Jesus and doing what Jesus typically does, he calls him out on this, right? And he's essentially going to tell a parable. And in this parable, he's going to show to Simon, hey, not only do I know the depths of the sins of this woman, but I also know the depths of your sins. So picking up in verse 41, we're told this parable. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50 when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. 
You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So the parable is pretty straightforward, right? We got two people who owe money. One person owes a bunch and the money collector cancels both debts. So who's going to be more appreciative? Who's going to love more? And Simon answers the question correctly, the one with the larger debt. And, you know, it's, it's safe for us to place people in the category. So obviously the sinful woman is supposed to fall into the larger debt category and Simon falls into this uh, smaller debt category. Now, the key to this parable was the reminder that he says neither of them can pay back the debt. So even you have Simon who has a small debt, he can't pay it back. But Jesus goes on to explain this woman, yeah, she has a ton of sins, but she has been forgiven and she recognizes, she is aware of the depth of her sins. And that's why she loves greatly. That's why she loves so much. She is loving me in a very uncommon way that's making a lot of y'all uncomfortable in here. But it's because she knows how bad she is. And she is so thankful that forgiveness has been offered to her. He says to Simon, you didn't offer me water. You didn't dry my feet off when I came in. You didn't give me a, a kiss to greet me. You didn't anoint my head with oil, which all those things would have been very customary things you offer to your guests, especially a guest of honor. He says, you didn't do any of that. You showed me zero respect. And yet this woman, even though she's doing these things, she's doing it even more far above and beyond what is even would be expected, right? She doesn't use water. She uses her tears. She doesn't use a towel. She uses her hair. She doesn't just give him one kiss of greeting. She has not stopped. She's not ceased to stop kissing me and kissing my feet. And she has anointed my feet, not with oil, but with an ointment, with a, uh, an expensive and precious ointment. So this woman, she is displaying great love because she knows the depths of her sins and how much she has been forgiven. The one who is forgiven much loves much, and the one who is forgiven little loves little. Now, each of these stories... Um, we not only see Jesus lovingly embrace the outsider and draw them in and treat them as insiders, but each time he displays his authority. Each time we are confronted with how vast his authority is. With the centurion, Jesus simply says the word and their servant is healed. With the widow, he simply gives the command and the dead man comes back to life. And in both of those stories, we see the results immediately, right? We see, we find out that the servant was healed. We also see the dead man immediately come back to life. So those are proof of his authority. So what about the sinful woman? What authority does Jesus display in that moment? If you remember, he says to her, your sins are forgiven. So Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. And how do we know this is proven? What can we look to for our proof? It's the way she loves Jesus. It's this 
deep and great love that she displays to him. So as we prepare our hearts for communion, who do you say Jesus is? Do you say he's just a great prophet? Do you say he's just a man with some authority and so I should fear him, but he's not the Messiah? Or do you see him as the forgiver of sins? Do you see him as the one who has the authority to say your sins are forgiven? And they are, they're canceled. If you're in Christ, whether you're a member here at Midlands or you're not, you are welcome to join us at the table. And as we eat the bread, as we drink the juice, let us both rejoice, but let us also pray and ask God, Lord, make me imitators of you. Make me go out and be willing to be friends of sinners and to approach the outsiders and draw them in and welcome them into your community. If you're not in Christ, but you want to hear Jesus say to you, your sins are forgiven, then let me share these words to you from Charles Spurgeon. He said in reference to that last story about the sinful woman, what music that sentence, thy sins are forgiven, must have been to her. Ah, says one, I also should like to hear that sentence. Beyond everything else in the whole world, would I desire to hear Jesus say to me, thy sins are forgiven. Then put yourself in place, in the place that this woman occupied. Humble yourself before the Lord and repent. Let's pray. God, thank you that through your son, Jesus, Forgiveness of sins are possible. God, make us a body of believers who grow in our knowledge of our sin so that we might grow in our love for you and grow us in our love for the outsiders. Let us be willing to go to the sinners, to go to those that we would categorize as uh, is not worthy of our time because Lord we want to be a people that are constantly remembering that we too were outsiders we too are unworthy of your love and your grace and yet you extend your grace to all who are willing to humble and uh, repent thank you for your son Jesus We pray all this in his name. Amen.